This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey, everybody. It's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in. Uh, so, hey, listen, uh, Don West and I, Don West is National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and a well-regarded criminal defense attorney with a great history of defending defenders in self-defense cases. Uh, he and I have been looking at high-profile self-defense cases for the last several years and looking for the lessons for concealed carriers. Over the last year or so, we've been joined by our friend Steve Moses. He's a firearms instructor. He's a CCW safe contributor and a, a brilliant guy when it comes to talking about the tactical considerations in self-defense. So we've decided that we're going to go back through the primary touchstone cases that had the best lessons for concealed carriers. We're going to revisit them with uh, additional insights and Steve's tactical point of view. And today we're going to re revisit the Womack shooting, which is a case where, from a legal perspective, the defender did everything right. From a tactical point of view, Steve Moses has some suggestions. You know, not that this... You're going to hear the story and you're going to be on the side of the defender and any criticism is going to seem... Uh, sort of ridiculous considering the circumstances. However, if this this defender, while he was ultimately exonerated, went through a three-and-a-half-week police investigation before the prosecutor announced publicly that he wouldn't be pressing charges, and there were a couple of opportunities to, with twenty twenty hindsight, avoid the shooting. And, and while there's no criticism of the defender here, there are... Uh, opportunities to learn and we'll explore those but this is a case that i think is a great example for concealed carriers it's also like a breath of fresh air we talk about a lot of doom and gloom in this podcast a lot of cases where defenders made minor mistakes and suffered severe legal repercussions for that but the truth is when um defenders go into a situation with a good mindset and follow the rules and wait until the threat against them is imminent and severe and reasonable, then they um, they come out usually okay. And so, great lessons here. Here's my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses. Thanks for listening. Yeah, normally when we talk about these cases, we refer to them by the name of the defender. And in this particular case, uh, we don't have the name of the defender because uh, in a rare situation for a high-profile self-defense case, this guy did just about everything right, uh, but it did result in the death of somebody, a homicide that was investigated for about three and a half weeks and in the end the defender was uh, justified declared justified no charges were filed and so we are going to refer to this guy as the defender and we refer to this case as the womack case because that's the name of the attacker who was shot and killed in this case um so here i'll, I'll give you the setup real quick um 
uh, Womack uh, loved to play basketball, and he was out at a gym at a LA Fitness, I believe, uh, outside of uh, Philadelphia, and they were doing pickup basketball, and he was playing against this other guy, the defender, who he accused during the game of a traveling foul. An argument ensued. Um, it seemed like throughout the game, these guys had a little bit of tension building up. Uh, and then at some point, the, the fouling became too much and Womack threatened the defender. He said he wanted to shoot him in the head. At which point, based on the testimony that we were able to pick up from the news reports, the defender said, I've had enough of this. I don't need this guy. And he packed it in and left. And we know from witnesses and surveillance video that Womack uh, essentially followed him out of the gym and waited for him outside the front entrance. And then when the defender walked out into the dark parking lot to get to the car, Womack followed him. He was shouting obscenities at him. And then when he got close, Womack pulled out uh, his Taurus pistol. He racked around into it and the defender's response was to pull his nine millimeter Glock out of his gym bag, which was already loaded. And he fired a shot and hit Womack in the chest. As Womack fell to the ground, he fired two wild shots that hit nearby cars, but injured nobody. Uh, and he died there on the pavement. Uh, Steve, is that what you got from the articles yes, that we've read? Yes, yes. That's pretty much my understanding. Don? Of myself, Sean. Don, were there any details from there that I left out that stood out to you? No, I don't think so. I, I I don't know what happened in the gym that resulted in the sequence of who left first, but my clear impression was that maybe the uh, defender went into the locker room. He may have been delayed a little bit. I got the impression from the reports that by the time he left the facility and was headed out into the parking lot, that Womack was already out there essentially waiting for him and being prepared to confront him. So that uh, when the defender left and encountered Womack, he would have had reason to be concerned just seeing him out there, notwithstanding you know, the fact that he wound up pulling a gun based upon what had happened inside the facility on the basketball court. And obviously, uh, Womack wasn't content to leave it there, whatever had happened, and wanted to continue the argument. Uh, it continued to escalate, as we well know, Sean, from your recitation of the other facts that wound up uh, to be a deadly encounter. Yeah, and one of the reasons that this particular you know, I researched these cases to see if they're worth us talking about and writing about. And one of the reasons this one stood out for me is because we are always talking about de-escalation and avoidance. And Steve, on our last podcast, uh, we were talking with you about the idea of disengagement completely. Not only you know, try to de-escalate and bring tensions down, but when that doesn't work, just walking away. And here's a guy who who did just that. He walked away, and one of the great arguments for just walking away is if the person 
happens to follow you and force a re-engagement, then you've demonstrated that you're more reasonable than that person was and you made an effort to avoid the confrontation. I want to read what the Montgomery County District Attorney said to reporters when he announced that no charges were going to be filed. He says, there is no doubt about who shot and killed Womack. So the legal issue to be analyzed is whether this was a justifiable killing. And to be justified in a shooting of Womack, the shooter had to be in a reasonable fear of death or serious bodily injury. Evidence would support a reasonable fear would include Womack's threatening words, his waiting outside of LA Fitness and following him through the parking lot, threatening him again, pulling out a gun and racking a bullet into the chamber while approaching the other man. And so now that I've read that, here's what I want to talk to you first about Steve from a tactical point of view. This, um, he did what we recommended and he just walked away. And then like Don said, it seems like perhaps he would have noticed the guy hanging outside the LA fitness as he was passing by. Uh, if he was being threatened and there was cursing, he certainly would have known that. And, you know, one thing about the just walk away idea is you do that if it's safe to do so. Right. And I, and I remember when we were talking about the Alexander Weiss case, that was where the kid got rear-ended by these two hothead teenagers who started making threats when he got out of the car that if he was to leave, you can do so in a way where you keep your eye on your perceived attacker uh, as you go. Tactically, how do you walk away from something like this? Well, you know, there's so many things that I do not know. Uh, a handgun is really, you know, it's most dangerous at closer ranges, but uh, that's simply because it's easier for people to hit a target at shorter ranges. It's still extremely dangerous at longer ranges. So even if he was 25 or 50 yards away, you know, uh, and the guy was threatening him with a handgun, he walking away is not necessarily going to be an issue. You know, there's other things we could do tactically, uh, run to cover, uh, or basically, you know, just, okay, just plant feet and engage. In this particular instance, without knowing all the variables, I do not know. If that person, say for instance, and again, I'm just, you know, hypothesizing, if I'd stepped outside that door and I had seen Womack, over there waiting for me, then the next thing to do would be turn around and go back inside. And so that would be probably my choice then for in terms of what we would call walking away. Where exactly the encounter took place, the distances and everything else like that, I really don't know. Uh, but I would say that there was a good possibility that if it was within, you know, I'm just I'm just throwing these numbers out there. You know, 15, 20, 25 yards. Uh, maybe you're not necessarily walking away, but you are moving at an accelerated uh, rate of speed to something that might, you know, basically be cover. And cover is an object which is capable of stopping incoming rounds. So on a car, that would probably be something like the engine uh, or behind, you know, the axle, something like that. Uh, bullets typically go through like a trunk, relatively easy. 
Uh, they may have a little bit of a harder time getting through a car door. Uh, they don't have a hard time getting through a car window. So just, you know, that would be taking a cover position. You know, don't mean to be getting off the weeds, but basically to me, that's the options that would be available to me. Right. So, so that's interesting. So for the, first of all, I think we all agree that on the spectrum of justified or unjustified shootings, this one's way on the side of a justified shooting. I agree. Right? I agree. Yeah. And, and so I always like to say that first, because if we're going to uh, look back at what a shooter did right or wrong, you know, we get very critical because we're Monday morning quarterbacking and we have a lot of things that could have done, might have done, and we honestly will never know all the details of what went on there. But, you know, that we look for the learning experience here. And one thing interesting that you said, Steve, is that in this case, walking away would have been actually sticking around where it was well-lighted and where there were people and where it was less likely that he might have a tense one-on-one counter encounter with this guy. Did I, did I hear that? Right, is that what you're talking well, about? Well, okay, if we're going back to the walking away, are we talking about the encounter in the gym itself? Well, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, he showed extraordinary judgment uh, and patience with that guy that, that decided, I am i don't need to be here. You know, this is my night to go play basketball and enjoy myself, but this guy's ruining it, and I'm going to be the bigger man and walk away from this. So that, that was... A smart decision but now i think you've shown us a scenario where you've had this antagonistic interaction with somebody and now you're leaving right you're about to go off into a dark uh, parking lot on your own and you see that this guy's here waiting for you so so you'd mentioned that um that an option for him there would be not to go ahead and put himself in the vulnerable position of going out into the, the parking lot, but to, um, stay where, stay where he was safer. Did, did I, did I misinterpret that? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, as I, as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of like, okay, it looks to me like there's a possibility at three different times that an action on the defender's uh, part was possible. One was in the gymnasium itself. Uh, I believe that uh, there was a reference to a heated argument, which, you know, suggests that there were words exchanged. And uh, so if we're going to really, you know, just Monday morning quarterback this thing, or in this case, Tuesday morning quarterback it, uh, let's just, let's say, okay, let's avoid the heating argument part in terms of lessons learned. Now, I'm not judging this guy for doing that. And I, I understand, and he probably didn't think anything about it, and that's very common in pickup, you know, basketball games. But a heated argument, argument, well, maybe that could have been avoided. Okay, guy wants to argue with you, uh, don't argue. Uh, if you decide you need to get away, uh, doing so in a manner where no disparaging comments are made as you leave, uh, that's also recommended. So that's an opportunity, you know, where we could call, we're getting both de-escalation and disengagement involved at the same time. When he stepped out of the, uh, the, the, the building itself, or looked out the building itself, well, that's another good opportunity is, okay, you know, this guy threatened me. 
is he out there? Uh, do I look around? Is there a possibility that I see him? If I see him, well, then maybe I just need to turn around and go back in. And then the third possibility is, uh, or the, th the third part of this would be you're actually out there where you're no longer able to go back into the building. And so the question then becomes, okay, how do I handle this based upon, you know, just the totality of the circumstances? Uh, where is my vehicle? Uh, where is he? Do I need to go to my vehicle knowing that someone might intercept me? And so these are just all things I don't know, but what I do look at it as an opportunity for us to, you know, just kind of sit here in our chairs and go, okay, uh, note to self, uh, lesson learned. Note to self again, same thing. Look for, you know, a person out there who threatened me. Uh, note to self again. I'm walking out to that vehicle. I'm looking around for that person because, I mean, that's just good advice anytime. It may not necessarily be someone that you had an argument with, but it could be, you know, someone that might want to, you know, to mug you or a group of guys that have been drinking, they're looking for a fight. Just keeping your head up on, you know, kind of on a swivel. I think there's much to be said for that. But again, I just so hate to kind of come back and be, you know, perceived as being critical of this guy in any way, because I just don't know what all took place. Sure. And he, and he did so much right. But I think what I'd really love to know about this is this third scenario. And, and so let's, let's forget everything that happened before. Um, and you're walking through a dark parking lot to your car and somebody behind you is yelling at you and making threats you know what it seems to me steve and that that someone with your training maybe doesn't let this aggressor get as close as he did or or maybe you don't wait as long to try to um address the threat and, and i'm curious what if I'm being followed in a parking lot, it's dark, it's late, I'm towards my car, I'm getting more isolated and someone's coming behind me with this type of aggression, what are some of my options here? Well, you need to be prepared to, you know, uh, it, it may be ready to be coming five times. So to that end, I need to do what I can to cause this situation to, you know, be de-escalate, which, hey, do you mind staying back? Guy continues, you know, and again, I, I'm always tempted to do exactly what I would do, you know, during these podcasts, which is I'm going to basically command him to stay back in a very sharp, very loud tone. I want him to understand I mean business, and I want to attract others' attention. And if that person continues to go on, then... I'm going to consider the circumstances. Does he have the ability, opportunity, and intent, uh, and can I retreat? And possibly in that position, if we're talking, you know, uh, you know, 10, 15 yards, uh, retreat uh, is becoming less and less of an option. So at that particular point, I would actually maybe be in a position where I would go back to that defensive display, which is, you know, I have a gun, I'll use it. Uh, I may, you know, get my hand on the gun, tell him the same thing. Uh, if he's moving too fast, I may get two hands on the gun and drive that to a low ready position because this guy has already, you know, voiced 
his, uh, his displeasure with me. Uh, he's already said that he's going to shoot me in the head, which would suggest that he may have a gun on his hand, uh, you know, on his possession, on his hand. Uh, I need to be ready for that situation to go ahead and just, you know, gestate and, and deal with it. Yeah, because we always say that that retreat or disengagement, walking away, is the best option when it's safe. And I thought, just when I read about how that final moments went down, that the guy pulled his pistol on the guy, racked it, and our guy had to then draw his gun out of his gym bag, I'm going to guess that maybe he knew this guy was coming behind him and got a hand on that thing before it all went down. Um, but there's a possibility that he walked away beyond when it was potentially safe to do so. So I, I think this, what you're saying here, we got this, we got the voice commands. And I imagine when you're talking about the offensive display, you wrote recently about the uh, the holstered ready position. You talked to us about the low ready position. He had... This, this range of defensive postures uh, that he could have gone through when the guy was perhaps a little bit further away from him that would have, like, uh, drawn the line on whether this conflict was going to happen or not in a place where hopefully the defender had more of a tactical advantage than this quick-draw scenario we see here at the end. Well, uh, absolutely, and again, you know, it's like, okay, and, and like I said... I may only have a momentary option where putting my hand on my pistol and leaving it holstered works. Right. Things may accelerate so quickly that I need to go either straight to low ready or I need to get that gun up and be prepared to take that shot. As a matter of fact, if I'm bringing that gun up and being prepared to take that shot, what I mean is I'm in the position of I'm getting ready to shoot this person because all of my other options have been exhausted. Yeah. And let's talk about exhausted options now. This guy racks the pistol right in front of our defender. And Don, I, I pulled a quote from our last conversation on this. And if we're talking about imminence and uh, intent on a self-defense case, you said nothing says I'm ready to shoot you like somebody racking a semi-automatic handgun within a few feet of you. Well, I, I think that's true not just in the practical sense that they have clearly made the gun ready to fire they've done the last thing they need to do to be able to shoot you but racking the gun is one of those hollywood techniques that people seem to use to underscore the drama and the intensity and the imminence of uh, a gunfight so it's funny that in Hollywood, people will be shooting each other for a few minutes, and then someone will, I guess, need to put the exclamation point on what they plan to do now, and they rack the gun again. And uh, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's kind of silly when you think about it in that context, but I guarantee you that the defender was not laughing as based upon what he just experienced in the gym and uh, Womack clearly agitated, angry threatened, uh, you know, lethal force before now does that last thing necessary to, uh, to carry it out. Talk about imminence. Well, well, sure. And yeah, so I have a personal belief that 
if you're going to be a concealed carrier, you might as well carry a loaded weapon. Steve, do you agree with me on that? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't do it any other way. <laughs> right? And first of all, I think if our defender's weapon's not charged, he might not survive this encounter. If he had to draw it and charge it before he shot, he's done. Then, like, the prosecutor even noted, right, that um, the act of charging your weapon is this moment where you're not actually defending yourself, but you're telegraphing your intentions. Um, the, the fact that this other guy's weapon wasn't loaded gave this extra threshold that he had to cross that made the defender even more justified for shooting him in the chest. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Um, yeah, legally and emotionally, to me, that... Um, and it's so hard, you know, to get inside the mind of the actors in something like this. Uh, we really don't know what Womack truly intended. He did everything to make it look like he intended to do, in fact, what he had said inside the, the gym, put a round in, in the defender's head. But we don't know because... We don't know how much of what was said inside the gym could be characterized as trash talk. Uh, anyone that's played sports has been in a competition of some sort where it kind of went bad and there was some ugly stuff said back and forth, maybe even rising to the level of a threat. Clearly that's what happened in the gym. Womack said stuff. There was no doubt in exchange, but it did escalate to the point of a specific threat to, you know, Shoot, shoot him in the head. No doubt these guys were experienced uh, gym guys. Uh, Womack for, uh, was an accomplished basketball player, an accomplished athlete. Uh, I had read that he'd played basketball both in high school and college. He was in his late 20s. He was in fine physical condition. I'm going to assume the defender was a competitive basketball player, athletic, strong, um, the ability to be physical, and that whatever the defender was reading uh, inside the gym when Womack was saying these things based upon this supposed traveling call, it concerned him enough to decide to withdraw from that. And I think that's really important because what we're really doing at each step of this uh, from a tactical standpoint, and Steve can certainly talk about this, but from a legal standpoint as well as trying to assess the reality of the threat, the degree of the threat, the imminence of the threat, because all of that ultimately sets the stage for your decision whether or not you need to use force and, of course, determines whether you are legally allowed to use force. So when the defender leaves the gym and Womack's waiting for him and they have more words and Womack comes toward him and then uh, this case is a whole lot easier because the defender saw the gun, heard the gun, all of that accompanied by Womack's continued uh, approach, it makes that call really easy. Uh, I wonder if most of that had happened, but the defender didn't see a gun, didn't hear a gun, but believed, based upon what had happened inside the gym, that he had one, and then draws the gun, 
or then draws the gun and fires the gun. I think we have a completely different scenario. Not to say that the defender wouldn't legally have been justified to display the gun and maybe even to pull the trigger as uh, Womack approached him, even without a weapon, but that gets a lot dicier, as we, we well know from other cases that we've had. Sure, and it's actually so dicey that we've been calling that the defender's dilemma. That is an armed defender dealing with a threat that is either unarmed or not apparently armed yet. And so in this particular case, we have the predicate of the conflict in the gym. We have this threat that I'm going to shoot you in the head, which uh, in the context of a basketball game might not be taken as a serious threat, but in the context of a parking lot, um, with continued threats and obscenities takes on new meaning. And then once you've introduced the, the gun, then all the question marks are gone and you can read the intent as, as well, you're a foolish not to read the intent at that point. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting spin on that. And that Steve has interesting thoughts. The idea of all that Womack did throughout the progression of this uh, incident indicated an, uh, an intent to, to use deadly force to carry out his initial threat. But we really don't know because if you think about it, it all happened on a basketball court where it may have been words said or some unwritten rule broken that caused Womack to feel particularly aggrieved, offended, justified because of his ego or that uh, the defender showed a lack of due respect in some fashion and the parking lot was carrying that out and that Womack decided to raise his level of intimidation and dominance. It could have been just to prove the point and that he did not have the specific intent to actually pull the trigger. Although as Steve well knows, it takes fractions of a second to do that once he's ready. Um, we, we really don't know what Womack had in his head, whether it was just kind of a put down standoff intimidation thing, or whether it was uh, just the last step before pulling the trigger. We do know though, don't we, that um, from the news reports that after the defender shot him, that Womack actually fired his gun twice. Uh, it didn't, as you mentioned, Sean, it didn't hit anybody. I guess it hit some parked cars yeah. maybe, but he had his finger on the trigger or put his finger on the trigger and was able to pull it twice. Well, I, I think what you're doing is you're painting a scenario where Womack's full of bluster and he's trying to be a badass and make a point, but maybe necessarily didn't intend to go murder the defender next to his car right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that is that, that's one of the possibilities that we have here well the 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 question for steve i think is that he more than anyone knows how quickly and dramatically and intensely these things unfold how little time there is for you to make your decision based upon the assessment of a lot of stuff that's going on and of course had the defender rightly concluded that Womack didn't actually intend to shoot him um, and therefore didn't shoot Womack and the whole thing just kind of dissipated when they yelled at each other and um, nobody died, 
that would be terrific. That would be a great outcome. But how on earth could the defender make that decision consistent with him protecting his life in a clear deadly force situation? What do you do? I mean, you have to give the benefit of the doubt to your own survival, don't you, Steve? Absolutely. You have to base your decision upon his actions. And his actions were such that it was a clear indication that he was more than likely or possibly going to shoot the defender. Uh, I believe I believe everything that you said is absolutely correct, Don. And I think it's very much a possibility that, okay, perhaps his intent was to go out there and uh, just humiliate uh, the defender, you know, regain face in front of his, you know, his buddies and everything. The value in that knowledge to me is just knowing that there are people that will take that action if they believe they've been publicly disrespected. And so I take that back a step further. So now I'm traveling back in time knowing that there are people out there that will kill or threaten to kill if they believe they've been disrespected. That would give a concealed carrier maybe an opportunity to de-escalate it right there so that it never moves past that point. To me, that's where all the value of knowing that that person may or may not have had the intent to actually shoot means, okay, was there something I could have done earlier in that series of events that would have caused this not to happen? But once he came out there and he manifested that intent, he had the ability, he had the opportunity, uh, and the defender, obviously at that time, really had no other options. Uh, defender did everything correct, in my opinion. And, and so what I hear you saying, Steve, is that, especially if you're a concealed carrier, sometimes you just have to throw a hothead asshole bone and let him win his yes. little mind game yeah. so that you can walk away yeah. from it without having to shoot him. Yeah, you're right, buddy. You're right. Hey, man. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to leave. You're, you're, you're right. Sorry about that. And I mean, sometimes that's all it takes. But if that person then continues to continue to engage, well, now, God, use this word. I, I like this term. You strip the ambiguity away. Okay, this has become mm. a problem, and I've done everything that I could to de-escalate and disengage. This person is continuing to encroach upon me. Uh, I need to be prepared to meet force with force if necessary. Well, and so you've told me a number of times, Steve, that there's these three things you're looking at when you're contemplating using deadly force, and that's does your attacker have the ability, the opportunity, and to the intent to kill you here. And, and in this case, we've got, once that gun's out, and especially when it's racked, he's got the ability, the opportunity's obviously there. If there's any question about that person's intent, um, you know, we, we've kind of covered our basis there. Yeah, huh? telling the other person you're going to shoot them in the head is pretty much a, a, a good indicator of intent. All right, well, well, then when you produce a gun and, and rack it, that, that, that's a, a confirmation, I think, right? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, one thing I would like to point out again, as you know, this, uh, you know, Tuesday morning quarterback with tw literally 2020 hindsight is the fact yeah. that the defender, from what I understand, pulled the Glock farm from inside his backpack. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not really certain that that is the best way to have a handgun on your person. I understand they were playing basketball. Uh, for me, I would have stowed that handgun in the, in the gym locker under lock and key. And as soon as I got dressed, I would have put that handgun, which was should have been in a holster, uh, in a position on my belt where I could have used it. Uh, there's two problems I have with pulling that gun from the backpack. Uh, one is it's slow. Uh, as Don said, uh, perhaps he actually bought time by virtue of the fact that Womack had to first rack around into his uh, handgun. And the second thing is, uh, if that guns, if that's not in a holster, that's not safe. So you reach in there, uh, assume this was probably, it says uh, before the end of the night, so it took place in the daylight hour, in the, in the, the hours when it was dark, uh, he probably just reached in there and grabbed that handgun. There's a real possibility that he could have got his finger in the trigger or did get his finger in the trigger, and he very easily could have shot himself or fired a negligent round. So when that handgun is not on your person, that you need to have quick access to it, uh, I'd like to make sure that that trigger guard is covered. And that, as much as anything, is just to protect me from myself. I tend to, when I grab things, uh, all of my fingers work sympathetically. That is, if I grab with my bottom three fingers, my index finger tends to curl in. Uh, that'll put it right inside the trigger guard and possibly right on top of the uh, trigger. Yeah. And so what you're saying, if you're going to conceal carry, then carry. That's right. Do it right. And have a holster and do it safely. And really, from a tactical point of view, uh, this unnamed defender's lucky that he got that shot off. I believe this to be the case. All right, guys, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening in. Next time, we're going to hear more from Don West on the legal aspects of this case. Uh, until then, thanks for listening. Be smart. Stay safe. Take care. <laughs>